I just want to tell you how much I enjoy hearing you all sing. There's a fountain free. It just, man, it just makes me feel so good to know that me and each of you have a sin problem that's been taken care of, and that invitation is for others as well. This evening what I want to share is geared more towards the youth, but I hope the rest of you don't fall asleep or are disinterested. I want to, the subject of what I want to share is called a man after God's own heart. And of course that refers to David and the uh, devotional that Brother Gerald gave. And while we're on the subject of Brother Gerald, I want to tell you about his grandma. I think they moved into our community when Grace and I was still in Ontario. Perhaps we came back about that same time. And Brother Rudy didn't live long. He soon passed away. But Sister Natty was the lady that in my first days of preaching would always meet me at the back of the church and she'd bless me. And I didn't know if she was just trying to be polite or nice or whether she actually meant it. But she never quit. And when our church is divided and I go back to Barnwell to preach, she was always there, and she'd come back and bless me. And every preacher needs that. You, you don't preach to be, to be praised of men, but it gets discouraging if nobody tells you if you're connecting. And she blessed me. Grace and I had a, a commitment somewhere, and we had to go, and my brother gave me three bushels of lima beans. And I told Sister Natty that I had to leave and I had this problem and she says, what is it? And I said, I got, Grace isn't here, I'm going to pick her up and I got three bushels of lima beans. She says, bring them over here, I'll shell them. And that was the kind of lady she was, she was real sweet. Well, you're probably curious about the cups here and I wanna give a lesson for young people you know, all three of these cups are made out of the same white clay. They mined this clay over in Aiken County, there where y'all kind of used to go to church, the kaolin pits over there. They make toothpaste out of it. They make pills out of it. It's a binding agent, and they make face powder for fancy ladies or whatever, but they also make fine china out of kaolin. In 1984, when we moved back from Ontario, my dad gave me this mug. And it's a Pioneer seed corn mug. It came with two mugs, and he said, here, you, you want one of these? And I, I took it. He kept the carfe, you know, that thermos thing that you pour nice coffee out of. But I guess he didn't care for the mug. Now, when I was in Canada, well, I grew up drinking sweet tea. Well, that's what we drank at mealtime, except at breakfast we had hot tea. And it wasn't herbal tea or mint tea, it was real tea, uh, black tea. And when I went to Canada and I drank tea up there, I found out that, that the British got the best tea, the Canadians got the next cut, and the Americans got what was slept up off the floor. And I really learned to like tea, and so every time we go to Canada, I stock up, and thanks to Amazon, now Grace knows where to get Canadian tea, and it shows up at your doorstep. And I, <clears throat> this was my teacup. I drink it in the morning, 
And then if it was chilly in the evening, I'd drink me a cup before bedtime. I did some calculations, you know, how many ounces and how many cups and rounded it off. And in the, the about 20 years that I drank out of that cup, I drank something like 855 gallons of tea out of that cup. But you notice it has a chip on it. The emblem is fading. It's stained inside, and you cannot get those stains out. The ceramic finish is getting kind of cracky. And I told Grace, sometime we ought to replace that cup. It just don't look the best. But it made a really good cup of tea. Well, we went to see her brother one time on our way to Red Lake, Ontario. We had a little time to kill, and we stopped at the Henry Ford Museum. And that's a whole nother story, but at the Henry Ford Museum, I saw this wonderful cup. It was nice, had a good handle. It looked like it would hold a goodly amount of tea, and it was nice conservative color, you know, for Mennonite brother. And it used to say Henry Ford on it, but the dishwasher took care of that. <laughs> nice cup. It don't have a chip or a ding mark on it. It don't show any stains. And I started drinking tea out of it. And it wasn't right. It wasn't the same. And I put, I tried all kinds of things. It just didn't work. You see, this cup is too big. It makes your tea weak. This is just the right size for a two-cup tea bag. This one, it's too weak. And then when you have tea, you know, it brews kind of red and clear, and it's really beautiful. It looks in a bright, it don't look good in here. It looks kind of gray, and it's just, and if it don't look good, it probably isn't good. It don't taste right. And I don't know if I used that thing a week or two weeks, and it went back up on the shelf, and I was back to this one. And I drank out of that cup for many more years until one day she bought me a cotton mug, mug that has a cotton bowl on it. And so, which is the best cup? The pretty one? The useful one? Or then we have this one the same white clay. Now, if you came to my house for Sunday dinner, Grace would give you a nice cup like this. Look at the pretty flowers. Has a nice saucer so it don't slosh on the tablecloth. But there's a couple problems. It don't hold very much, and it's got a really sorry handle on it. it men just can't get it. it. It's, we do this, we don't do this. But it's pretty. Do you know that the Bible talks a lot about clay and being molded and that God is the potter and that we're the clay? And Job, nine, Job 10, 9, remember that you molded me like clay. Now will you turn me to dust again? Who has the authority to make us to be what? Isaiah 29, 16, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? He did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, 
He don't know what he's doing. He knows nothing. And then <clears throat> Isaiah 45. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. And let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou or thy work? He hath no hands. Well, then in Romans, in the New Testament, verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me this way? Does not the potter have the right to make it out of the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes, and some for common use? And so are you satisfied with the way that God made you? If you ever talked back to God and you said, God... I don't like my hair. I don't like the lack of my hair. I don't like whatever. And so I'm going to ask you this evening. I don't know many of your names, but my, my friend over here in the red shirt. Which one of these three would you like to be? Oh, well, I like to be the tall black one. The tall black one. All right, let's go to the, to the youth, the young ladies. Be honest. How many of you would like to be this cup? There's some honest girls up here. You like to be pretty. That's nice. I like pretty girls. There's nothing wrong with one. <clears throat> young fellas, you like to be pretty? Don't we all kind of want to be this cup? If we're honest, you know, the one that gets the attention. Guys, they, they like to be a little rugged. Sometimes they'll take this one. But what if God makes you like this? Can you be happy? You know, chipped and dinged and a crackly finish? Can we be happy? You know, it's my privilege to decide which cup I'm going to drink out of. And I've tried them all. This one is a pretty good cup of tea, but it, the handle's bad, and it's too little. And I told you what's wrong with this one. And this is the cup I choose over and over again. And it's the same way with God. He makes us to be what he wants us to be, and it's all about surrendering. And I can tell you the times when I had to surrender to God, and I wanted to be the pretty cup, and he wanted me to be the useful cup. And I says, well, won't you let me at least be the black cup? No, I want you to be the useful cup. And it hurts, and you're disappointed. But I want to tell you that surrender is everything. Surrendering to the will of God is often not easy. And we may never know why. But I want to assure you, it's the only place to be. I'm going to need these cups tomorrow morning. And so I'm just going to leave them here tonight. It's not because I don't care about them. I'm just not going to tote them home. And and bring them back. Some years ago, 
I got a phone call from a man in a neighboring church and he wanted to know if I'd come talk to his youth. And, um, and then he emailed me and he, he gave me a list of things he wanted me to talk about and to consider in my talk. And that can be helpful sometimes, but it also can kind of tie your hands and make it difficult because if he has bullets to shoot, won't you let him shoot them? I'll shoot my own, thank you. But um, uh, he listed things, you know, like, that youth need to hear, like, you know, snares and traps and misguided thinking and, and uh, you know, behavior patterns in young people that you know, aren't the best. And, and the more he started describing, I, I thought, you know, that man's describing me when I was that age. And, uh, yeah, maybe I can talk about those kind of things. I know all about them. And so I took on the job, and I hope he wasn't disappointed. You know, all of us want to be part of the cool people, don't we? Yeah. You know, I go to Bible school, and I watch the first, you know, the introductions, and I'm going to talk to you all about Bible school tomorrow. I Maybe I should talk to Brother Sam first, but anyway, we're going to have a little talk about that. But you watch these young people come, and invariably within a couple days, they were all shy and, and uh, ill at ease, but within a couple days, this, this cool group develops. And, you know, that's the group we want to be identified with. Well, that's not always the group you should identify with. But Jesus reminds us when talking about the Pharisees, he says that they wanted the approval of men more than they wanted the approval of who? God. That's a description of me when I was 18. I really cared what my peers thought about me. I cared what God thought about me in the dark, but in the light, I wanted approval of the cool group. And I think that's normal. The praise of men often leads to shallowness with God. And so remember that. Why is it that we associate certain forms of conduct with certain age groups? There's a crossroads down below our house about two miles. And in the fall of the year, when we get done with our peanuts and cotton, we plant ryegrass and clover in all of our fields and, and graze cattle in them. And I went down to the crossroads one morning, and there was fresh doughnuts out in my nice ryegrass and clover. Well, I wonder who did that and what his problem is, you know. And I could feel a jaw getting kind of tight, and my fist was kind of drawing up. And, then I thought, oh, this is not good. I'm the conference non-resistance secretary, and I teach love and non-resistance at Bible school, and I got to get a hold of myself here. And I kind of brushed it aside. Well, the next morning I went down there, and we put up electric fence around there so we could let the cows out. And man, there was a whole lot more donuts out in the field, and and there was electric fence and fence posts strung up and down the road. And then I got to the stop sign, and it was one of these nice new stop signs with two legs. And he had just backed up to that thing and just backed it down. And then when the stop sign caught on his receiver hitch, it just crinkled it all up. And I said, you know, 
I really wonder who would do that. And I said, it's not somebody Brother Leon's age. They wouldn't do that. It's not somebody Brother Freed's age. They wouldn't do that. How about somebody that's about 25, 30 years old? No, they, they wouldn't do that. I said, I bet you it was some youth. And then I got to thinking, John Boy. And John Boy was the grandson of my neighbor, and he was a little frisky. And I, I bet it was him. And so why do you think I would accuse John Boy of, of sowing around out there in my rye field? Well, I'm going to give you a couple reasons why. He, had a, he was in that demographic age group of about 19 to 20 when, when guys sometimes tempted to do daft things. And then he had the equipment to do it. He had a Chevy truck that was about three feet off the ground with big baboon tires on it. And, and I'd caught him in out in my hay, rye field before. And so it had to be John Boy. So I went over to his granddaddy's house and looked to see if his truck had any mud on it, see if there was any electric fence hanging in the bumper. Then I went back to his receiver hitch to see if there was any red reflector paint there from the stop sign, and John Boy's truck wasn't home. But you see, in my mind, I knew he did it because he fit that demographic, that age group, when we wonder if people will ever grow up. He fell into that age group that is often marked by poor choices, irresponsible behavior. You know, I didn't really mean to, or I just wasn't thinking. If you guys ever done something and told your dad, I just wasn't thinking. I didn't mean to. Well, there's hope for you. Proverbs 2, verse 15. Catch the little foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. And so tonight, for our purposes, the little foxes represent many obstacles and temptations that often plague relationships. Perhaps it's the fox of uncontrolled desire. And that little fox can bring you so much guilt and suffering. And it'll carry over into your relationships with your peers. And as we as young people would often make us make poor choices that often hinder us for many years as we move into adult life. Well, then there's the fox of mistrust and jealousy. And that little fox can suck all the air out of normal, healthy relationships with your peer group. Friendships cannot survive without an element of trust and suspicion just doesn't work. Jealousy. They won't be your friend anymore. And every teen needs friends. Lots of friends. Good friends. And you know, Brother Rich and I have had this conversation a couple times at Krista's wedding and since that 
I was so glad that my boys was there when his daughter and his nephew was there because I was happy that there was good people that I trusted to influence my boys. And, well, he says he was glad my boys was there. Well, thank the Lord he trusts them. Uh, we tried. <laughs> Maybe it's the fox of an unforgiving spirit which keeps a record of wrongs and it won't accept an apology from another. That's devastating when you ask forgiveness from someone and they just blow you aside and won't acknowledge you and won't relieve you of that need of unburdening your guilt. That happens to young people sometimes. Beware of the little foxes that can destroy so much of the good that God wants from you. They are so good at just sapping your spiritual vitality. Keep you just kind of, you know, your nose is just there at the surface and you can hardly get your breath. And It's so discouraging. Young people get that way sometimes. Don't fool yourself with the false idea that you have plenty of time to get serious with God about his plan for your life. Grace and I went to a funeral not too long ago for Cameron Barry. Cameron Barry was 13 years old and he was a son of a dairy farmer in our area. And him and his cousin were riding on the golf cart and having a good time and his foot slipped off the edge. He was hanging on to the top and riding on the running board, and his foot slipped off and got under the tire, and it sucked him down off and slammed his head onto the ground. And he was in a coma, had a concussion, and it just seemed like an ordinary concussion, and they figured he'd be fine and come home the next day. And during the night, he hemorrhaged, went into emergency surgery, and and they um, took off life support three days later and he died. And while we weren't tight with the family, they were dairy farmers and that makes you really tight. And so we went to the wake or the visitation and we stood outside on the street for three hours waiting for the crowd to meander around and up on the porch and into the funeral home. And there was a little boy and his daddy just ahead of us and we, was, we could see the coffin up there, and we were getting close, finding the little boy says, Dad, why is this taking so long? And he said, Well, Sonny, you know, <clears throat> all the other wakes you've ever been to were for old people. But Cameron was just 13. And um, that makes a big difference. It, it, it sends a vibrant message out into the community. I went into the cemetery at the Barnwell Church. We, the cemetery at Edisto is full of Confederate soldiers and those kind of people. But I went to the Barnwell Cemetery some time ago and my parents are there now and Sister Nettie's there now and so the age demographic has shifted a little bit. But I added up the age on all the tombstones and divided it by the number of tombstones and and Jeff, how old do you think the average age of that cemetery was? 75. Oh, 
Okay, Jody. Leon. 43. Don't count on a long life. In my ninth grade literature class over there, Turner Ashby High School in Dayton, Virginia, we had to read what they called a classic by Charles Dickens called A Tale of Two Cities. Now, I don't know what points. Brother um, Freed there, you, you know, you were educated. How does a classic get to be a classic? But <clears throat> The Tale of Two Cities wasn't real high on my list. It was about the French Revolution. And I pretty much decided after that that just because it's a classic don't mean it's a good read. But we had to read it. And that book starts with Charles Dickens saying, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Well, it was the best of times because all these French peasants were being liberated from their um, terrible conditions. It was the worst of times because all the French hierarchy was being beheaded. Do you know that is so description? so descriptive of that age in life from about 13 and 14 up to about 25. It can be the best of times and it can be the worst of times. It can be the best of times as we anticipate new privileges, new responsibilities. Some of you just could not, could count the days until you could get your driver's license. We've all done that. That was a good thing. And um, all the anticipation of growing up through those years Maybe our parents allow us some new responsibilities. We make new friends. We get to, to go away on our own, to use a vehicle, go places, and the ability to get there on our own. And then go to Bible school. We have service opportunities, or hopefully a, a time of service in missions or church work or health care. And then there's the whole romance and dating thing. Boy, it don't get much better than that. And, Choosing a life's vocation can be exciting too. It can be frustrating, but it can be an exciting time. It doesn't get much better than that. And those are the best of times. But all too often, all of us has went through a period in our teen years that we would have to admit are the worst of times. We have big doubts about our self-worth or we may have felt the burning sting of rejection, either in a more general way or in our social relationships, or the crushing heartbreak of a romance going sour. And there's times that we can't find our niche or our place in God's will, and we wonder if God really does have a will and a place for me. Why is it taking him so long? Does he have something special for me? Then why don't he tell me? And we feel like we've got this foggy bottom experience. And here are all of our friends, you know, they, they know God's will. They got the nice girlfriend and their life is just falling in place. And, and we just are groping around and wondering, 
We don't hear much from God, and it's discouraging. Someone told me that if we make it past 13 and 14 and all of them zits, that you probably should be able to handle pretty much anything that comes our way from then on. But it really does hurt. It rips our hearts and emotions out sometimes when we don't feel the acceptance of our peers, especially if they're of the opposite sex. When I was in the fourth grade, I broke my left elbow and the bone came out the back of my arm and I had a little hospital experience for a couple days, but that's another story. But when I got my cast off, my arm was kind of crippled. And I had to endure the humiliation of going to school every Monday morning. They picked up new teams for softball. And the team captains would, they'd pick the best guys, and then they'd pick the old order girls. And then they would consider, they kind of draw straws for me. And um, I felt the burning humiliation every Monday morning. You know, these old order girls, you know. And then there was me. Instead of a, an RBI average, I had a high strikeout average. And every week, the same thing. And I felt the burning humiliation of watching the team captains over and over again. And I wasn't catching that good either. I had a numb hand and I could catch the ball, but I couldn't feel when it was time to pinch the glove and the thing would shoot out. And that makes you a really cool guy too. Teachers, please, when you pick teams number off, or you pull your people inside and let them pick teams, then come out and announce who they are. It's humiliating to be the guy that gets picked up after the girls for no fault of his own. Yeah, we need to pick up teams, but try to keep the shame thing to a minimum, okay? It seemed that I had a habit of breaking my limbs from time to time, as was the case the other spring. And I pretty much finished this arm off. And <clears throat> One evening, um, our, we, we have our church divided up in um, small Bible study groups. And, and our Bible study group, it sounds like we're supposed to study the Bible, but they were going to play volleyball and, uh, with another Bible study group. So we was going to have Christian volleyball, I guess. And um, I, I decided, you know, volleyball's kind of not my thing anymore, you know, I'm grown. And we was there playing volleyball with these families and the youth and their children. And I noticed this mid-aged lady with a mother of eight children was tearing me up. She was good and she was, and I, oh no, man, my volleyball career's over as well. And here I was in my upper 50s, and you know, it didn't bother me. I probably can do things she can't. But if I was 16, it would hurt to have some girl spike a ball on you, wouldn't it? Would you like that? No. 
Not only was I going to not make the big leagues in baseball, my volleyball career was over too, but it didn't really bother me. But it really is unsettling when you're looking for clear and sense, a sense of direction in our life and the things that matter most all seem to just fall apart on us or we have no clear direction. And to add insult to injury, like I said before, your friends all seem to have it all together. You know, that cool group, the group that we wanted to be a part of and they never invited us in. For the next few minutes, I'd like to consider two overriding questions that I believe all of us face in our teen and mid-20 years. The first one, does God have a plan for my life? And number two, if he does have a plan, can I trust him? A few years ago, Galen Schrock, the was the administrator of Heritage Bible School, called me up, wondering if I'd come back uh, that year. And any of you all go to Bible school? Brother Sam, where, where are you at? Volleyball's kind of a big thing up, up at the Northern Monastery too, isn't it? And he says, will you come back and teach again? I says, yeah, if I don't have to play volleyball. <laughs> anyway, we move through different phases of life. But the phase that young people in may not seem all that critical to somebody that's 40, 50, or 60 years old. But to a 15-year-old, it's real, and it can really hurt sometimes. Can God, can you trust God with the decisions that he made for you? Most of us want to be the pretty cup, but God wants you to be something useful. And it oftentimes is not the cool cup or the pretty cup, it's the useful cup. Remember that. Some lessons that we can learn from King David as a young man. <clears throat> Before David, we must have a quick look at King Saul. And in 1 Samuel 9, 2, we read about King Saul. He was an oppressive, tall man. It says he was without equal. He was a head taller than everybody. And he stood out when he was with his buddies, and the girls all said he was hot. Um, I'm adding that. But who isn't impressed with a tall, handsome man? And then in chapter 10, we read that he had a sense of humility. He wasn't braggarty or a show-off. You know, he was hiding in the baggage when they went to anoint him king. He was the kind of young man that anyone would have wanted from a, for a friend. But in the following chapters, we see that Saul had some negative traits as well. Not only was he good-looking, he had an explosive anger, a temper. He had a pride. He wouldn't wait on God. He says, I'll do it my own way. I'll make my own decisions. And then in 1 Samuel 12, we read that the kingdom was ripped from him. And his grasp, you know, it was ripped from his grasp and it was given to someone else. And God gives a specific definition of who that person would be and the qualifications. And what do you think it was? Mm-hmm. 
He gives a description. Perfect. A man after God's own heart. So we have the scene at Jesse's house. You know, Samuel comes with his little bottle of oil. and He's looking for a young man whose heart is in touch with God. The first son was the big handsome fella again. But tall doesn't cut it in God's plan. And we learn from Saul that tall doesn't mean close to God or servant of God. And Jesse had seven sons and he went right down through them. And here God gives Samuel a little rebuke, a life's lesson. He said, God does not see men as young ladies do or other men. He looks at their heart. God looks way past all the masks. He looks past the bark. He looks past the fluff. And he looks right to the point where he knows what we really are inside. You know that proverb. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but, you, um, but not all of the people all of the time. But we cannot fool God any of the time. Sometimes God has to use the little guys with the crippled legs and the crippled arms because the big and handsome guys are so full of themselves being the pretty cup or the cool cup that God can't use them. There needs to be three things. There needs to be a self-consciousness in the maturing years between the teen years and the 20 years. And even though there would be a setting king in Israel for several more years, David went home and at that point he started preparing himself for the time when he would be king. He didn't go to the throne and the palace right away. Uh, he was a teenager probably when he was anointed. And he probably wasn't going to be king until he was 25 or 30. You know, he spent a lot of time running away from King Saul. But the Bible says that at that point, he started to prepare himself for the calling that God gave him. You and I need to do the same. Your teen years should be those years when you formulate and prepare for a life of service. Are you thinking and planning that way? Or are you thinking about a good time? About being the pretty cup or the cool cup? We need to surrender our lives and hearts to God. We must begin thinking and seeing ourselves an extension of God's plan and his kingdom. And what he may want to do with us. And as it relates to a life that honors him and is committed and useful for his service and his kingdom and the church. We need to understand our limits and how our choices affect the relationships with others and other people. You know, <clears throat> the temptation to promote ourselves or to promote our agenda is not just a big people's thing. It can start in the youth. You know, the biggest buck, an impressive set of wheels, the tall, handsome boyfriend, 
Parents, our children know our values. They know what they are. And sometimes we can have a tremendous goal and ambition of how to grow our business and have no idea or no plan of how to grow the church. I want to tell you young people um, that no, you cannot be anything you want to be. I don't care what your graduation speech tells you. You can't. How many of you think that you can ever be the king of England? You won't be. Don't even try. Don't try to be things that aren't reasonable. But try to grow and develop yourself into a useful cup, a useful servant that God can use. By the time you've reached your teenage years, you should have started to learn that you are not the center of the universe and deal with this whole selfishness that we're born with. And by the time that you're a teenager, if you're still self-important, still feel the need for attention, there's a certain immaturity there that must be dealt with. God can't use people who are self-important. By now, you should be aware that you have limits. You will not always be first. You will not always win. And there may be days when you wonder if it wasn't better if you would have stayed in bed. We all have them. Most people want friends that not only understand their limits, but they want friends who respect their limits and respect the limits of others. I remember years ago when we still lived up north, every summer all the mission staff would come together and they had what they called conference. It was church and business meetings, and then there was a big picnic and a ball game. And I remember this one guy was in his 40s. He had grown teenage children, and he played ball like a brat. He throwed his glove on the ground. He throwed his bat. He hollered at people, and if I'd have been Reverend Shantz, I'd have sent him home. But I just couldn't believe that a man with that age would play ball that way. Learn to understand your possibilities and what role you might fulfill in God's plan. As a teenager, your world is growing larger than your family. And you may now be a possible influence for good in your youth group, in your school, or at your job. And it's during these times that we learn what gifts and talents God has given us and what we can do to be able to use them to glorify God and be a blessing to others. It says, even though David was anointed king as a young man, he didn't actually get the crown, the scepter, and the throne for many years. I knew a young man who went to junior college, and he wanted to start out as the uh, CEO of General Motors. He didn't want to start out putting wheels on an assembly line. You know, we never was able to get it through his head that you can't start out at the top. And young people, you need to start out where God can use you, not where you want to be. Sometimes those goals are unrealistic. 
Sometimes we may feel limited by the things in our past or our background that may have little, we may have had little or no control of. But God created you and he gifted you. And it doesn't really matter who your grandfather was or how educated you are or if you have been through difficult economic times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1, it talks about faithfulness. Now it is required of stewards that you must prove faithful. That's what God is asking for you, to be faithful. God will give you a future. And he will forgive those things that are wrong and confessed. And he will give you grace and strength to change the rest. God can and God will and God does use people with an obedient heart. I want to read an example. I have everything I need for joy, Robert Reed said. Amazing, I thought. His hands were twisted and his feet were useless. He couldn't bathe himself. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't brush his teeth, comb his hair. He couldn't put on his own underwear and his shirts were held together by strips of Velcro and his speech drags on like a worn out audio cassette. Robert has cerebral palsy and the disease keeps him from driving a car, from riding a bike and from going for a walk, but it didn't keep him from graduating from high school and attending Abilene Christian University from which he graduated with a degree in Latin. And having cerebral palsy didn't keep him from teaching at the St. Louis Junior College or from venturing overseas on five mission trips. And Robert's disease didn't prevent him from becoming a missionary to Portugal. He moved to Lisbon alone. And in 1972 there, he rented a hotel room and began studying Portuguese. And he found a restaurant owner who would feed him after the rush hour and a tutor who would instruct him in his language. And then he stationed himself daily in a park where he distributed brochures about Christ. And within six years, he led 70 people to the Lord, one of whom was his wife, Rosa. I heard Robert speak recently, and I watched other men carrying him in his wheelchair up to the platform, and I watched him lay his Bible on his lap, and I watched his stiff fingers force open the pages, and I watched people in the audience wipe tears of admiration from their faces. Robert could have asked for sympathy or pity, but he did just the opposite. He held up his bent hand in the air and boasted, I have everything I need for joy. And his shirts are held together by Velcro, but his life is held together by joy. There needs to be a God consciousness in our life. We must learn to desire God's plan for our lives. And if David was normal, he probably dreamed of the day when he would take over his dad's flocks and herds. Perhaps he'd take leadership of his father's business and he'd make it prosper and grow. He'd add some irrigation in that pasture and perhaps he'd get some better rams to increase his blood, better bloodlines with his ewes and you know, he was, he was going to take things from Jesse's farm and take it up a few notches. But when God called David to be king, he resigned his own plans and gave them up for God's plans. 
He must have told Jesse because he soon got a job at the palace playing harp for King Saul. Maybe some of you here have said in your heart, no, God, no, I don't want to. Perhaps it was a special relationship that you know is wrong, a habit that you enjoy that you know is not God-honoring. Maybe it is a call to do something with your life that is not what you wanted to do at all. Parents, are you and I standing in the way or denying the call of God on the lives of our children and what he may want them to do? Some of y'all heard of Rick Rhodes from Igo. He was in our area not long ago, and he was telling about, <clears throat> he was teaching at some church in another community, not your community. And he was talking about the need for young people to have the vision and the goals for mission. And a, and a lady came up to him and you know, how can you do this? I ha she had three daughters and they all lived around the house and then one moved 20 minutes down the road and she couldn't cope with it. And, you know, Rick, he said, I just can't relate to parents who aren't excited about their children doing things for God. Rich, did you all feel that way about Krista? You know, it just, it almost makes you proud in a good way. But here was this mom that didn't want her children to, you know, just move down the street. Never stand in the way of your children when it comes to God's direction and leading in their life. You can undo in a single moment anything that hinders your children by saying, God, whatever call you have for my children, I surrender them to you. You know the story of Hannah and Samuel and others. We, Grace and I, had given each one of our children to God. We just never knew that he would want one of them back so soon. Well, I have another example, but I think I'll leave it where time's moving on. <clears throat> if God has a plan for my life, how can I know and trust him? Jeremiah 29, 11 is a very familiar verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Abraham and Sarah were in their middle 90s, way past normal childbearing years. Yet the Bible says in Romans 4 that Abraham believed God's promise and began to begin living like he was already a father. He didn't wait until Isaac was born. He started acting like a daddy now. I don't know if they went shopping and got the crib or what all, but he believed what God told him and he acted on it and started planning for that time. God does not lead us where he will not sustain us. And when God says he wants to use us, we need to live as if God has already given us that assignment, but it will take effort on your part. It may take special training. It may take surrender of something that you always wanted to do. 
but God will give you the strength and sustain you to prepare for the calling that he has for you. And then when God opens doors, we need to walk through them. Take and use the opportunities that God gives you. And as one experience leads to another, our trust in God grows. Oftentimes, we will learn that the things that we thought we couldn't do with God's help may actually match our talents and abilities. But God knew it all along. He was preparing you for that time and that assignment. It takes some of us a long time to catch on, and I don't have time tonight to tell you all of my blunders, but there was plenty. And then finally, we, meet, we must be scripture conscious. And last night when I was visiting with the young people, I shared this motto with them. I want you to write it on your heart, and it's good for us older ones too. Do you remember what it was? We are never more what? We are never more spiritual than we are what? Scriptural. Remember that. When people try to tell you this is the way to go, is it scriptural? If it's not, it's not spiritual. This whole, you know, somebody told me today that they was going to a more spiritual church. Okay, were they more scriptural? You be the judge, I don't know. When God calls you to be a parent, a teacher, a church worker, a missionary, it never gives you the right to run roughshod over anybody or the scriptures. And we must submit to God in all things. Every man, every woman, every boy and girl here this evening can be a person after God's own heart. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your mistakes are that you've made. Just say, God, here are my experiences. Here are my gifts, my talents, my weaknesses. And I'm going to submit them to you and let you open the doors. I desire to glorify you. There's a lady that Grace and I know that lives in Northern Ontario and she was um, an outstanding lady. She's lived there for probably 45 plus years. And uh, my first encounter with her was when I flew uh, Brother Myron Mullet from Abbeville down to work there at Grassy Narrows and she treated me like I was her little boy and looked after me. and showed me a good time and she was the kind of lady who could skin a moose and yet at the same time be a lady, uh, outstanding lady. Her name is Melva Ann Zook. She doesn't get a lot of good news anymore. She has kidney cancer and some of her reports are discouraging. But she's an upbeat and cheerful lady, and she wrote this, and I'd like to share it with you. It's called Nails. Nails are not all the same. There's long spikes for framing, short, flatted, hailed roofing nails, and slender finishing nails with no heads at all. Some have a special coating to withstand exposure to the weather. And each kind of nail has a different use. 
The long ones are used for the floor and ceiling joists. Medium-sized ones are good for nailing the roof sheeting. Short, fat ones tack shingles into place. And some are spiral-shaped and don't split the wood so easily. Others have rings around them and are best for holding plywood in place as these nails will not easily work loose. And the slender, no-head variety are needed for the finer finishing jobs. A roofing nail would be useless for nailing a 2 by 8 board in place. And on the other hand, a 4-inch common nail would be improper for tacking down shingles. And a great variety of nails is not just desirable, it's essential for the proper building of a house. However, there are certain standards necessary for a nail to be useful. Sometimes I would reach into my nail bag and pull out a nail that had a large blob of metal attached to its stem, rendering it completely useless. Then God showed me that variety is good. In fact, it is essential. But when one individual is different because of rebellion in his heart, he has lost his usefulness and cannot become a part of the building. And oh dear, how often I saw nails get all bent out of shape if they were hit in the wrong way, or if they ran up against a hard, knotty place in a board. A patient person with no deadlines to meet might straighten the nails and try to use them again, but we usually just tossed them aside and started a new nail, a straight nail. One kind of nail that I haven't yet mentioned is called a masonry nail. The label tells us that these nails have been heat treated to harden the steel so that the nail will not bend even when driven into concrete. Now not every nail is required to go through that degree of fire, but if the master builder puts the heat on us, we can know that he's making us strong for a particular task. It takes many boxes of nails to construct a house, but they don't do anybody any good as long as they all stay together in a box with all the others of the same kind. It is no more useful and a lot more confusing to mix all the kinds of nails together in a box. Those nails have come out of their boxes into the hands of the builder and are to be used in the place for which they are designed. If only one nail were used, the structure would be weak and fall apart. Even many nails, if placed in only a few or three boards, would be ineffective. It takes one, someone with knowledge and experience to properly place all the various kinds of nails as to make a strong house. And as a beautiful and functional structure takes shape, is it the nails that you notice and admire? And as you look at the kitchen cabinets, do you exclaim about the attractive finishing nails? No. When the house is completed, the nails hardly show, and you're seldom given them a thought. Yet, could you construct a building without them? We are useful as we are necessary, and we are essential to the building of God's kingdom. But if we prefer our own way, and if we want to be used only in a showy position, if we are easily bent out of shape, or if we stay in the safety of our boxes, our master builder will find others 
who are willing to be used according to his plan and design in the beautiful church that he is in the process of building. What kind of a cup do you want to be? And what kind of a nail are you? Remember, it's not the showy nails and the beautiful cups that are the most useful. This evening, <clears throat> I want to ask all of you young people, if you are willing, by God's grace and by God's strength, to commit yourself to a life of service, a life a God-honoring life and be willing to forsake any personal ambitions, any personal goals that would inflate your portfolio and not God's. Are you willing to commit that? And parents, are you willing to let your children go to be the useful nails and the useful cups that God meant them to be? I just want to sing one song of Just As I Am. And if you want to make that commitment to yourself, if you've struggled with those things, uh, you can stand to your feet and it, I'll acknowledge you and you can sit down. I'm not going to ask you to come forward um, and then we'll have a prayer afterward. If you've struggled with surrendering to God, if you've struggled with surrendering your children to God, just stand to your feet and acknowledge that. Shall we sing? Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you, brother. God bless you and you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your attention. I'm sorry I take too long. I have a story I want to read you so bad. Are you sure? Brother Gerald, would you come up and close the service when I'm done? Young people, we don't know what you will face. We thought the Vietnam War was bad. We thought the hippies were bad. And some of you thought World War II was bad. And we don't know what you will face. I don't know what my grandchildren will face. I hope God spares them of Revelation's not pretty. But I want to read something to you. This is a story about a young family in Russia at the turn of the 20th century. What a legacy a godly father can bestow on his children and the generations that father him, follow him. My father was such a man, kind, warm, loving, and honest, just and noble and principled, hardworking, he embodied all that we could conceive in our Heavenly Father, and he made our concept of God very positive. 
being the eldest of six children, and although I was a girl, I was right, his right hand on our prosperous estate on the Russian steep. Together we rode across the field surveying the crops and organizing the duties of our hired labor. He was just and kind to our labors, and on these trips he would share with me his sound advice. Katie, he spoke softly when he noticed my pride. Don't look at your face and your outward appearance. Make sure that your heart is right in the sight of God. And when we sold our grain in the fall, Father deliberately put just a little more into the sack that was, than was necessary. No one had ever accused him of dishonesty. Too much rather than too little, he said. And sometimes in the spring, the poor in the village would come to our back door to buy food when their own winter supply was exhausted. He always gave them much more than they paid for. His attitude was one of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. He was always willing to share. Our home was the center of village social life, and on Sunday, Father would welcome everyone and all to our full table of Vespa. Our wealth had come from my mother's family, and although Father had less material wealth to contribute to the marriage, he had an education and a keen intelligence. He had his millwright papers at an early age and seemed to win the respect of the Mennonite leaders when he was still a young man. This was no easy task as a person had to prove himself in these small, close-knit communities. Father often encouraged me to memorize scripture and reviewed the verses with me. And one day came, he said, when we may not have the written word but I noticed a pensiveness on his face. I could not imagine such a day. Life would surely go on like this forever, and I would undoubtedly marry a landowner's son, and our children and our children's children would continue to flourish on the limitless rich soil of the Ukraine. In peace and joy, we would raise them in our close community with the church as its focal point. But suddenly the tables turned. Father's ideas went against the new and accepted order. There was no God. There was no ownership. It was every man for himself in an atmosphere of mistrust and brutality. One morning the dreaded knock came, and our whole family was rudely bundled out into the wagon. My parents hardly had time to pack a few bedrolls, cookware, in a little food. At the command of the Russian officers, the horses pulled us away from our ancestral home. His impassive face embodied all that we now feared about Soviet Russia. We looked back at our impressive estate, rooms full of fine oak furniture, barns full of pedigreed horses and fat cattle. The orchard was drooping with sweet fruit, and we would never see it again. Thirteen families from our area were similarly disposed by mounted guards with long sabers, and we were herded into freight trains, which eventually reached Siberia. 
And our exile was a reality. The written word was indeed a thing of the past. And we were set to work without food, without shelter, felling trees and cutting logs for export. We were at the bottom of the criminal ladder and under the watchful eye of a single commandant, we went about the business of staying alive. Huge quotas were hard to fill on an empty stomach. Somehow we found the ingredients for soup, nettles, mushrooms, tender shoots, bark, and small animals. I watched Father change from a robust and ruddy man to a bedraggled skeleton, and he was not quite 40. But his faith in God was unwavering. Finally, hope of a better life on this earth died. We will all perish here, he said. Katie, you and Maria are still young and stronger. And we were 19 and 18. Perhaps you can escape and somehow reach our relatives in the South. And he reviewed the directions and addresses with me until I had committed them to memory. And we prepared for flight. We were very weak physically, but my parents gave us what little food there was and made us ready. We prayed together one last time. My father gave each of us his blessing, much like the fathers of the Old Testament. Tenderly, he placed his hands on our heads. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord be gracious unto thee. The Lord make his countenance shine upon thee and give thee peace. And we went out together and embraced one last time. He was torn between seeing us starve in the wilderness and seeing us leave at the mercy of the Siberian winter in a Russia he could no longer understand. Father was weak as he walked along beside us with the aid of a tree branch to see us off. And as we walked out into the night, each star seemed strange and ominous. We were deliberately breaking the law for the first times in our lives, and we felt like common criminals. Father could not continue after three kilometers. We stopped to bid him one last goodbye, and he took his leave of us. Now, children, he said as tears streamed down his cheeks, Remember that you have praying parents in the forest, and if we don't meet again here, we will meet in heaven. And my last sight of him I will never forget. He leaned on his cane, and his body was shaking with loud and terrible sobs as the tears flowed to the ground like water out of a pitcher. I had never seen him weep. And slowly we turned and began to walk. The stones could have cried out, and the mountains covered us, and his agony could still be heard as we walked further and further into the night. I never saw him again. Years later, I heard that he had taken to his rough bed after returning to our family at the slave labor camp. And it didn't take long for the breath 
his last breath to overtake him and his spirit was broken. Eventually, I made it to freedom. I often missed my father profoundly, but somehow he lives on. The rich heritage of goodness and integrity had been passed down for generations, and I see him in the patience and gentleness of my sons with their children. And sometimes I catch a glimpse of him when I observe the stability and calm in my grandchildren. And as the baton of the Christian walk is passed on to yet another generation, it gives me peace. Young men and young women, it may be your turn. And I hope that my generation of fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers have taught you well. May God help us.